John chapter 14 this morning. John chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. John 14, as we will wrap up this chapter this morning, we'll begin reading uh, in verse 25 and read down to the last verse of the chapter. Verse 25 of John 14, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. This chapter closes as it opens. In verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. In verse 27, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Because our Lord was leaving his disciples, his church, and returning to his Father, he continued giving them instructions. And in fact, will continue through chapter 15 and into chapter 16. Continued giving them instructions concerning their need of the Holy Spirit. He had been their teacher on earth. Now the Holy Spirit would teach them. He had kept them peaceful by his presence and his power while he was on the earth. Now they would be kept peaceful by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit with them. He taught them that a servant was not greater than his master. Now the Holy Spirit would teach them that suffering for Christ's sake was part and parcel of true Christianity. This chapter closes with instruction, instructions concerning Satan's presence in all the events that led up to Calvary. Satan had already entered Judas Iscariot's heart and moved him to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he has already left and has gone to the Sanhedrin. He was already working among the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. And he would be active working in all things leading up to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is manifesting his power in this time. The power of darkness. But more than that, he is also the arch enemy of true Christianity. He will remain the enemy of God's people until the end of time. We begin this morning with our Lord's statements in verse 
25 and 26. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, when the Father, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. I have spoken to you, being present with you. Our Lord's earthly ministry was limited in His teaching. His teaching, His disciples, during the course of His last three or so years, left them instructed, but also left them with much to learn. His time on earth was limited by His purpose for coming. It is true that His purpose for coming was to reveal the Father. It is also true that His purpose for coming was to reveal the truth of the, of the Word of God. Yet, He had not revealed the fullness of those things. It's also true that His primary purpose for coming was that He would become a sacrificial substitute for sinners. And His Father had set the date that he would save his people from their sins. And that date was closing very quickly. There was an absolute necessity that the Spirit of God be sent to continue teaching the people of God the truth of the Word of God. And so he mentions again the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Holy Ghost. Unfortunately, the word ghost and the word spirit in, as it is used today because of the literature that's out there, because of TV, because of stories that were told, even because of the cartoons. It has a negative connotation. And when you say ghost to children, the first response is negative. That's not a good thing. Or say spirit to children. Oh, it's a negative response. Children, when the Spirit of God is called the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, that is not a negative thing. It's a good thing. It is the Spirit of God which is, who is impeccably holy. The Spirit, the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. Now, before, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Truth in verse 17. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ calls him by his common title. The title that will be used primarily in the New Testament the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. And he uses the word he when he is come. This masculine pronoun demonstrates two things for us. First, that the whole Godhead, the Father, the Son, and he, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, the whole Godhead is referred to as masculine and not female. Why do I bring such a thing up? Normally, I wouldn't, because normally people understand that. But there is a great movement in our country and across the world to make God female by the feminist movement. She did this. She. In fact, there's been a, quote, Bible put out where all the pronouns were changed to she. It is a perversion of the truth. But it's out there. It's out there. And I believe it's important that the ministry of this pulpit address certain errors as the scriptures allow them to do so. 
He shall teach you. The second thing is that the Holy Spirit is a real person, not just a power coming out of God to the earth. That is also a teaching that is out there. That the Holy Spirit is seen as a power coming out of God. Not a person that dwells with you, that is your friend, that teaches you. This is part of the charismatic movement. We want the power of the Spirit of God. We're not talking about Him as a person, as a comforter, as a teacher, as an instructor, as a leader. What we want is power from God. And that's the Holy Spirit. Here in this one verse, Jesus Christ corrects those two errors. He will teach you. Holy person, Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit is a person. He will teach you. Whom he whom the Father will send in my name. Whom the Father will send in my name. Now earlier we learned that the Father had sent the Son of God in his name, in the Father's name. John 5 in verse 43 says, I am come in my Father's name. John 5, 43. Now the Father and We'll learn in the next chapters, the Father and the Son of God will send the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son of God. And so the question arises, what does that mean? Because in the name of Jesus, I do this, and in the name of Jesus, I do that, is a very common phrase today. How is it used in the Scriptures? And what does God mean to teach us when He says that the Father, and later He'll say that the Son will send the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. There are several things that we need to learn from this. The first is this. In His name means that the Holy Spirit is sent in His place. The Father sent the Son in His name in His place. The Son of God was sent to reveal the Father. In the place of the Father, He reveals the Father. The Spirit of God was sent to reveal the Son of God. Sinners outside of Israel and within Israel and Judea and Galilee, sinners were, had Christ revealed to them, but only a handful of them, really. After the day of Pentecost, thousands would be converted as Jesus Christ is revealed to them by the Spirit of God. In His name means the Holy Spirit was sent with divine authority. The Son of God was sent possessing full divine authority. God came to the earth. The Son of God, God came to the earth, dwelt among men, had a body of flesh, God in, in human flesh, in the Son of God. Now the Spirit is sent to dwell in men. He too is fully God with divine authority. In his name means not only that he comes in the place of with full of divine authority, but it means that the Holy Spirit is sent to represent the Lord Jesus Christ's interest. This is very important. Jesus Christ came to this earth to represent the Father's interest on the earth. 
when he died, was buried, rose again, and ascended back in heaven, he and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to represent the interests of the Son of God on the earth. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified thee, speaking to his Father, on the earth. My life, my ministry has been to glorify thee, to glorify the Father. That's why I came, so that people will understand who the Father is. In John chapter 15, we'll get there in a few weeks. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus Christ says, When the Comforter has come, he shall testify of me. What an amazing statement that is made. He does not testify of himself. He testifies of the Son of God. Again, very important doctrine addressing major error that is in our country and in the world. There, that error is that the Holy Spirit is all about the Holy Spirit. That if the Holy Spirit is in your church, it's all about the Holy Spirit. The emphasis is on the Holy Spirit, His gifts, His abilities, His power, not about the Son of God. Oh, we want to talk about Jesus, but that's incidental to the Spirit of God in our midst. And yet, His very ministry of being sent in the name of Jesus means that He was sent to represent the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ on the, in the world. That Holy Spirit, sent by the Father, and later in the next chapters we'll learn, and by the Son, was sent in the name of Jesus to teach and represent, to teach the Word of God and to represent the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. He, that Holy Spirit, shall teach you all things. This is what Jesus Christ is saying here. The primary interpretation of this verse is that the Holy Spirit will teach the apostles everything necessary for their ministry and their calling. Their calling and their ministry was to, to do foundation work. They, they would go into an area where there was no churches. They would preach the gospel. They would organize a church. And then they would lay the foundation of the truth of the word of God in that church. That church would later call a pastor. And that pastor's responsibility was to build on the foundation of the word of God laid in that church. How many times have I seen churches that I've organized call a pastor only to come in and not lay on the foundation laid in that church, but to establish a whole other doctrine and destroy the church in the process? Jesus Christ is talking to his apostles primarily here. That's the primary interpretation. But what does teaching all things mean? It cannot be interpreted as all things without distinction. The apostles were not omniscient. Only God was. It cannot be interpreted as knowing all things about all things. That's too much knowledge for a man to have. Only God has that. Neither does it mean all things relating to everything that can be known to men in the natural realm. 
all things relating to math and science and history in relation to the universe. All things relating to the whole of the natural realm. It cannot be. No man has that knowledge. So what does it mean when he says the Holy Spirit will teach you all things? It is all things and everything that is true and everything that is necessary regarding God, regarding the true nature of mankind, regarding God's salvation, His way of saving sinners, and regarding true Christianity, how it functions in the local church. These are the things, the all things, that the Spirit of God taught the apostles. So the Holy Spirit teaches the apostles everything they need that has to do with the gospel, with the salvation of sinners, with the organizing, organizing of churches, and the foundation of churches. That's the interpretation. But there are applications that can be drawn from this verse. One is an application can be made with others who are called of God to the gospel ministry. The Holy Spirit does equip and teach those things found in the apostles' doctrine to men who are called of God. He teaches God-called men enough truth to use them in the ministry that He calls them to. Some God-called men know more than others. That's okay. Some are highly educated. And some are not so highly educated. But each God-called man is taught enough to be useful in God's kingdom and to be useful to the churches that God would have him function in and minister to. That's what the Holy Spirit does. There's another application here. And that is that the Holy Spirit teaches every one of God's children. No believer learns the Word of God, learns the truth from God's Word, unless they've been taught by God. Unless the Spirit of God is teaching them. Let me quote a verse to you. Two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But, as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. That verse is ripped up out of its context and preached across this nation and the other nations that God will bless you with all kinds of physical blessings. But it has nothing to do with that. Those things that have not entered into our hearts and not able to be seen and not heard does not have anything to do with physical things. Verse 10 tells us, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The Spirit searching the deep things of God, the things related to God, takes those things and brings them to the eyes and ears and hearts of a believer. The deep and spiritual things of God, the truths related to God that are, that are hidden away, that the natural man cannot receive, that even Christians do not understand. 
The Spirit of God takes those things, digs them up out of the mind shaft of God's and brings them over and opens the eyes and the ears and the heart and says, look at this truth. And God's people learn something. And they see things that they had not seen before. And they understand things that they had not understood before. And it impacts their life and changes them. And they begin to know and understand things about God that they had never known or understood before. Never seen or even heard I don't know how many times in the course of my ministry somebody would come up to me after preaching and say, Brother Pat, I never knew that. Now that's not owed to me. I did my study. I did my research. I preached, yes. But if you learn something, God did something about teaching you that. So my response to that is always, well, praise the Lord. Because God's taught you something that you didn't know before. He will teach you all things. He'll teach the apostles what their ministry and calling is about. He'll teach God-called men so that the Word of God is useful in the ministry God calls them to. And He will teach all Christians from the Word of God so that they stand amazed at what God teaches them from time to time. But not only will He teach them, Also, he brings all things to your remembrance. Now, bringing to remembrance. Have you noticed in John 14 how many times certain statements have been repeated? When we go to chapter 15, they're going to be repeated again. And chapter 16, they're going to be some repetition. I don't know if you've mentioned that. You know, God's not redundant, right? You know, God doesn't just slip up and repeat something twice. Oops, I shouldn't have said that the second time. They should have got it the first. No. God repeats things, right? Over and over again. And then, and then after repeating things, we forget. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring to remembrance. Let me quote three verses to you. John 2 and verse 22. Early in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, he makes a statement, and inserted in the midst of it is a statement that after the Holy Spirit came, they remembered. John 2.22 says, When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the Scriptures. He remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the Scriptures. And the word which Jesus had said. After the death, burial, and then resurrection. Oh, we remember that three and a half years ago he said this. Now we believe. I know that doesn't happen to you. But it does to me. What about John 12 and verse 16? These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and they had done and that and that they had done these things unto him. John 12 and verse 16. They didn't understand. They heard but didn't understand after he was glorified. Oh, now we remember what the prophets had said about him.
Acts 11 and verse 16. Many years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, many years after the Holy Spirit came at the day of Pentecost, many years of ministry has transpired out of the local church in Jerusalem and now other churches. Peter goes to the Gentiles, finally, in Acts chapter 10. And he preaches in the house of a man named Cornelius. And then he comes back to Jerusalem, has to defend himself for going to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. Gives you a sort of an indication of the condition of that church, doesn't it? He has to defend himself for preaching the gospel to sinners who are Gentiles. And in the midst of that defense, in Acts 11 and verse 16, he says, Then remembered I, then remembered I the word of the Lord. How that he had said, John indeed baptized you with water, but I will be that but I, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. I remembered what Christ said during his earthly ministry, and when I was preaching to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell on them as it fell on us. And I remembered that Christ said, This is what's gonna happen. He will bring all things to remembrance. The Holy Spirit's presence with believers is to teach them, but also to remind them of that which has been taught to them. The scriptures are full of truth, repeated regularly so that we ought not to forget. Truth repeated under different circumstances so that we see the truth and it applies to every circumstance that comes into our life. Not just in a classroom setting or when we're sitting beside the still waters and in the, on the green pastures, but as we go through the valley of the shadow of death and walk through the waters that will not overflow us and in the fires that will not burn us. Things are repeated to us about who God is, about the truth of what He does in the life of a believer. And we are taught again and again, and the Spirit of God reminds us, don't forget, this is what is true in this situation. Let me suggest to you something. As we pray to be useful in the kingdom of God, I believe we ought to pray two ways at least. First, that the Holy Spirit might teach us in such a way that we might become mighty in the Word of God. I've listened to preachers my whole Christian life since 1975. And the ones that have profited me the most are the ones that quote the most Scripture. The ones that quote Calvin or Pink or Gill. And I quote, in fact, before this message is over, I'm going to quote Gill once. Okay? And you heard me quote men. But the power of learning is not in what other men say, but in the Holy Spirit taking God's Word to your heart. I was explaining to one of the brothers this morning that for years and years and years, I set aside all devotions that explain things and gathered up a handful of devotions that were nothing but the Word of God. 
And I would sit with my coffee and my chair and I would say, God, teach me something. God, help me. God, show me something. And it was scripture. That's all it was. And I'd go away some days blessed, some days struggling. You've been there, haven't you? And then along the way, I'll pick up a devotion here or there. But you can search in my house. You will not find hardly any devotion that explains the Word of God. That's by design. I want God to come and minister His Word to my heart. Now, if you use one that explains it, it's okay. I'm not condemning them, okay? And you know if you've been... In the last several months, I used a lot of Spurgeon's devotions as I sent them out to the church. They're good. They're profitable. But it's not the Word of God. I was explaining to that brother, you know, sometimes Spurgeon will say something in the middle. Boy, I love that. But then he says something, I think, I don't, I'm not getting it, and I don't think they will, and so I'm going to lay that aside. I'm not going to send it out. I want it to be edifying. I want it to be profitable. And so we need the Holy Spirit to teach us so that we become mighty in the Word of God. But secondly, as we're praying to be useful in His kingdom, that we pray that the Holy Spirit might bring the truth of the Word of God to our remembrance when it's needed. For us to give an answer to somebody that's before us. And we're talking maybe to our children or we're talking to our neighbor or we're online with somebody or we're, or we're just standing in line in the grocery store and a conversation comes up. A thousand different scenarios. Lord, help me to remember. That becomes even more earnest as we get older. Some of you are younger. You don't understand what it means to sort of forget things. I'll soon be 70, and I'm praying more earnestly, Lord, please help me to remember. Help me to remember. I don't want to stand to preach before your people and forget. Pray, God, teach me. And then pray, God, help me to remember what you've taught me. Because that's his ministry with us. And then we come to verse 27. And he leaves off talking about the Holy Spirit and instructing him about the Spirit of God and now moves to peace. He's talked about he's talked about love, he's talked about faith, he's talked about obedience. Now, peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth. Give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace I leave with you. Now, several weeks ago I taught this, but I'm going to come back and visit it again to refresh our memories. There are, the Bible teaches two kinds of peace which are part of true Christianity. The first is peace with God, accomplished on our behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ when he offered himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf to reconcile us to God. To reconcile us to God. This peace is a recognized peace between God and the believer. The believer has been justified. They've believed on Jesus. They've called unto Him and their sins have been forgiven. 
and they have to learn what that means. They don't always know the fullness of that. But part of that is that they're justified. God does not see any sin in you any longer. And that itself brings peace. But though not always felt, and though not always felt, it cannot be removed. Peace with God cannot be removed because it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not upon how I feel today or not upon my, my uh, ability to perform today. We're born sinners, and as sinners, enemies with God. God also then became the, our sworn enemies. God, who cannot change, is the enemy of the sinner. The sinner who cannot change is the enemy of God. They're at odds with each other. Jesus Christ comes as the only mediator between God and man. He lays hold on God. He lays on, on the sinner. And at Calvary's cross, his death reconciles. And he who was the enemy of a sinner now becomes their friend. And he who was the enemy of God now becomes the friend of God. And they are bound together in Christ. And that warfare is ended. And there is peace between God and the sinner who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. He took our sins upon him. He suffered the wrath of God against sin on himself. And then was buried and then rose. And as mediator prays high priestly prayers. I pray for them that I've offered my sacrifice for. I lay hold on God and them and I bring you together. And we have peace with God. Peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Ephesians 2.4 He is... 2.14 He is our peace. Referring to the peace offering that an Old Testament saint would, or sinner would offer before God. A peace offering. I want peace with God. Well, how will I get peace with God? It has to be through the substitute, through a sacrifice of someone that stands in your place. And then you're at peace with God. Colossians 1.20 And having made peace through the blood of His cross. This, these verses refer to that peace with God that I'm talking about. But there's a second kind. That kind is called peace of God. It relates to Christianity also, the peace of God. This peace is bestowed upon us through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, using the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. This peace comes and goes. It can be disturbed by the world, by our own sin, by Satan. It can be disturbed by circumstances. It can be great and it can be less. And we often find ourselves in need of it. David cried out in Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have they which love thy law. That is, love the word of God. It comes from the word of God. But also, he says, in Isaiah says, 
Isaiah 26, 3, that will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Our mind stayed upon God by using the Word of God to know who God is. And Paul writing to the Philippians saying, be careful or anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request unto God and the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep, shall guard, shall garrison your hearts and your minds. This peace comes from Spirit of God using the Word of God. Give us understanding of who God is and God's ways and we can pray for it and we can ask for it and we find it as we walk with God. It comes and it goes. If it, was, if it would come and stay, we wouldn't have to pray for it. But Paul instructs us to pray that this peace might come and be part of our lives. My peace I give unto you not as the world gives. It is important that to see that there are two kinds of peace in this world which the child of God may try to access or may seek to access. The first is the peace given by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second is the peace that the world gives. What's the difference? The peace of God, of God, is real. The peace of the world is imagined. The world is not at peace. Anyone who can look at the world with an objective eye saved or lost, can come to that conclusion. No one can declare by looking at this world honestly and objectively, the world is a peaceful place. It cannot be. It is not true. Even if you're lost, even if you're in the depths of darkness, even if you are one step from hell tonight, this morning, you cannot rise up and say, the world is such a peaceful place. I love it. If a man will be honest, he must say, the world is not a peaceful place. The world is not a peaceful place. So the first thing is, God's peace is real and the peace of the world is imagined. But Satan and the world are liars. They are both very, very persuasive. Both very, very deceptive. Both very powerful to deceive. Sinners desire peace. They do. They want a peaceful life. And they have imagined that they may, that that peace may be gained, at least a measure of peace may be gained from the things of this world. They were told that by the world. They believed what the world said. But they quickly discover that what they were given by the world is not lasting. Here, here, if you'll just take this, you will become peaceful. Okay, I want it. It's not there. 
It doesn't take long to figure it out. What you need is money. Okay. Well, what you need is more money. Okay. Well, what you need is more. Okay. And in the end, every step of the way, it's still the same. What you need is, is drugs. What you need is sex. What you need is, is better education. In the end, everything given, everything gained comes up short. And so the world is right there to say, okay, okay, it's not there. You know, maybe we were mistaken. It's over here. This is where it's at. And so quickly we run over here and we, oh, we got it. Only to learn it's not here either. Well, okay, it's not there and it's not there. Where is it? Well, it's over here then. And yes. And that's the world chasing after whatever to get a little piece only to find out it's not there. Over and over again the world promises that which it cannot give because it does not have until the sinner is lost in an endless search for that which the world cannot give but that which the world promises to give. Not as the world. It is fleeting. It is imaginary. It cannot give what it does not have. The peace of the world is temporary. Whatever little thing I get, the peace of God, permanent. The peace of the world is an illusion. An illusion. The peace of God, real. It passes understanding. David puts it this way. Psalm 28, verse 3. Draw me not away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity which speak peace to their neighbors but mischief is in their hearts. There's no peace. They speak about it. They talk about it. They try to persuade you of it. But inside, it's not there. It's not there. Isaiah 48, 22, God says to the nations, there is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Paul picks up the same doctrine in Romans 3, in verse 17, when he says, and the way of peace they have not known. They have sought it. They have looked for it. They have been promised it. But they don't know it. Because it's not there. It's not in the world to give it. It comes from God. My peace I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Jesus is saying, I'm bestowing my peace upon you, so, so don't be troubled. The Lord was facing the darkest night of his life. He was about to face Calvary. He's leaving and going to Gethsemane. And from Gethsemane, Judas will come and take him, and they will take him to Calvary. It's night, and it's probably the darkest night of his, of his earthly journey. He will face the onslaught of Satan. The prince of the world is coming. 
He will face the onslaught of the world, the religious world in Israel. His disciples were faithful and obedient up to this point. But they were young and, and to some degree, to a great degree, untaught. The events opening before them that evening would test their faith severely. Is it not true that the events opening before us in our day test our faith? Has not the question risen in your heart, where is God in all of this? Why does God allow thus and thus to happen? Has not that question arisen? And it's not complaint, and it's not questioning, it's, 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 it's unbelief. It's not that I've denied God, it's not that I don't believe Him, I do. So I'm not questioning His existence, I'm not questioning His power, I'm not questioning His right and His purpose. But like David of old, where are you, Lord? Even though God was right there with him. And so on this night, as Christ is teaching them and says to them, My peace I give unto you, you don't let your heart be troubled. We learn from the rest of the scriptures that the events facing them would cause them to be troubled. They would flee from the Lord that night and he would be left alone. They would stand afar off at Calvary as he is here surrounded by the Roman soldiers and the crowd is gathered around and they're in the background. They would deny him. One of them would. And then all of them would hide in fear after he died. And despite knowing all of these things, because Jesus Christ is God and he knows all things. And despite knowing all those things, our Lord exhorts them not to be troubled. Not to be troubled. But they don't fully understand his instructions. They have not been fully taught yet. They have not had things brought to their mind in remembrance. And so he says, peace be unto you. I believe it's extremely significant, brethren, that after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he gathered on that first day of the week with his assembly in the evening, that the first word that he spoke to them was peace be unto you. John chapter 20 verse 19, then the same day, the first day, at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus, and the Bible just says he came, comes walking in came Jesus and stood in the midst of that assembly. He doesn't say assembly. Stood in the midst, I added, of that assembly. Stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be on to you. What an amazing Savior we serve. Three days earlier, he had talked to them about that. He'd gone to Calvary's cross. He'd suffered 
He had died. He was buried. He rose the early morning hours of the first day of the week. His disciples had suffered greatly during those time, during that time. Questioning. We thought he was Messiah. We, we had these questions that plague us. And he comes in and the first words out of his mouth, peace. And then he says, you've heard. What I, that I, I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I have said, I go to my Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it come to pass, you might believe quickly. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I go to my Father. Can you imagine sitting by the bedside of a dying saint? And he looks up at you and your tears are streaming, right? I mean, it's happened, right? And he says, you know, if you love me, rejoice because I'm going to my father. And how hard that is, right? Because we, we don't want them to go, but they are going. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not questioning their love when he says, if you love me. He knows that they love him. But he says, listen, what's happening and what's going to happen is good. It's a good thing. I'm going to my Father. And then he makes this statement. My Father is greater than I. And there are probably no words spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ which have been so misinterpreted and so maligned than that statement, my Father is greater than me, than I. How do we interpret that? Some say Jesus was a lesser God because his father was greater than he is. Some say he was only a man. His father is greater. Some say he was an angel, created as an angel, and took the form of a man. His father, his creator, was greater. All come to the conclusion that by these words, Jesus cannot be equal with God. Jesus cannot be God. What do we do with these words? First, whenever you're facing a text or a statement or a word that seems to indicate something contrary to a clearly revealed word in the Scriptures, to what has been clearly taught in the Word of God, always remember, the Word of God does not contradict itself. We have already learned from our Lord's own teaching that He and His Father are one in essence. There is only one God. And though God is revealed in three distinct persons, yet the Word of God teaches that each of those persons is fully God while there's only one God. And you say, Brother Pat, I can't wrap my head around that. And I say, good. As soon as a, 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 a frail, weak human thinks he can explain God, he has entered into an area that he has no idea about. Here is a statement of truth. One God manifest in three persons, each person fully God, yet only one God. That's the Scriptures. Well, how can you believe that? Because the Bible teaches it. What? Well, can you explain it so I can understand it? 
No. But God can touch your heart so that you believe it. I and my Father are one. And in Philippians 2.6, the Apostle Paul says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God. God and the Son of God equal as God. You cannot, volumes have been written to try to explain it. You cannot, just leave it alone. This is the truth of the scriptures. But oh, everyone looking for an excuse not to believe Jesus. Oh, the scripture says, even the words of Christ, my father is greater than me. So, he's either a lesser God or not God at all. False assumption. What then does it mean? When our Lord speaks of his Father in terms which indicate that there is a difference between them, he is speaking from his humanity and with reference to being a servant. I'm going to quote two verses and I want you to listen to them because these came out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. First is John 8 29. John 8 29. I do always those things that please Him. I don't speak unless He speaks. I don't do work unless He works. I do always those things that please Him. The second I want to quote is in two verses or three verses later, here in John 14, verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father... And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. I love him, and he has commanded me. Now that doesn't sound like equality, does it? And I do what I'm commanded. I do always those things that please him. That doesn't sound like equality, does it? And yet, he who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, became a man and became a servant and humbled himself uh, even unto the death of the cross. So when you read terms like this, it is referring to Jesus as servant. And finally, as we close, hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of the world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. I will not talk much with you. The next two chapters, chapter 15 and 16, are almost all that he would say to them up until after the resurrection. After the resurrection, he spent 40 days with them, teaching them and opening their understanding and helping them to understand what had transpired. But chapter 15 and 16 is the sum total, really, although a few statements may have been made, but that, in terms of teaching, that's left from the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. The prince of this world is coming. He cannot find, he will not find, he does not find anything in me, because this is the impeccable Son of God, this is God himself. Satan cannot find anything in him to elicit sin from him.
But he is coming nonetheless. The ETH. He has come and continues to come. The prince of the world is a name that has already been used by our Lord Jesus Christ in John 12 and verse 31. A reference to Satan himself. This name speaks of him who stole the dominion of the world from Adam after deceiving Adam and has ruled it from the days of Adam until these days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though our God governs the whole of the universe, yet Satan has some rule over the earth. John Gill says, quote, he is, quote, he is called by that title not because he has any legal power and authority over the world, but because he has usurped a dominion over it, end quote. This name is used to teach his disciples, not just to reveal that he's coming for Jesus, but to teach his disciples who it was that would momentarily control the earth and stir up all the persecution against them also. To fill the world with hatred against God and the people of God. Paul reminds us we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6, 12. He's coming. I know he's coming. I know what he's already done to Judas. I know what Judas is doing now as he's stirring up the Sanhedrin, stirring up the religious leaders against me, and they are voting to kill me. I know what's going to happen when we leave this house and we go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I know these things. He is coming. He will not find anything in me but nonetheless he is coming and with that full knowledge and with that explanation to his disciples the next words out of his mouth is but that the world may know that I love the father as the father given commandment even so I do that statement in the context of Satan coming is powerful Satan is coming, Jesus Christ said, but I love the Father. He has shown me his will, and I have ag agreed to it. His will is to save sinners from their sins, and I have come to save sinners from their sins. My love for him and my love for sinners motivates me to willingly, to freely lay down my life as a sacrifice for them. To willingly go into the darkness, into this dark place where Satan is. This place called Calvary. Because only in that place can I save my people from their sins? He's coming. He will not find anything for me, in me. I love my Father. And I have a commandment from Him. And in light of this darkness settling down, I am set with my face for Jerusalem. I am set with my heart for Calvary. 
I'm set to do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Despite what is coming, because I know what is getting ready to transpire. I have the promise of my Father, I will not be allowed to corrupt. I have the promise of my Father that after three days I will come again. But these are the things I'm facing, and I'm facing them because I love Him, and I love sinners, and it will be accomplished. I will save my people from their sins. Satan cannot find anything in me to stop that, and he cannot stop that from happening. I want to insert one last thing. It is absolutely essential for us to see that our Lord did not yield himself to Satan in saving his people from their sins. That is a common teaching today. That Jesus yielded himself to Satan in hell to take away the sins of sinners. It is blasphemy. It is heresy. The scriptures in this text and others say he submitted himself to his Father's will. The idea that our Lord would somehow submit himself to Satan is blasphemy. Satan has already come to him in Matthew chapter 4 and, and has already come to him and said, I'll give you the whole world. All you have to do is worship me. All you have to do is submit to me. And he said, no! And now it is weakest with strong tears crying out to God that to, to go to Calvary. Now, as it were, as a man shedding tears, if there be any other way, let that be done. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, be taught biblically that he submitted himself to Satan. Instead, he's submitting himself to the Father. It is freely and foolishly taught by many who claim to know God, and to, who claim to know the gospel, that Jesus submitted himself to Satan. They are liars. They are deceivers. The word of faith movement, the charismatic movement is rife, is full of this. Jesus Christ is God. He did not submit himself to Satan. Adam did. The first man did. And when Adam submitted himself to Satan, he plunged the whole world into sin and death and destruction. And forfeited his right to rule the earth. And when the second man came, the Lord of glory, Satan comes, will you submit to me? <laughs> no. I'm going to submit myself to my Father in heaven and get these people out from your kingdom of darkness and save my people from their sins. Dear one, listen. Jesus Christ is set for Calvary. He is going there on purpose and for a purpose. He's going there to save his people from their sins. If you are here without Christ this morning, he is the only one who can save you from your sins. Satan will deceive you. There is peace. There is prosperity in the world. It is there. I will give it to you. Just bow to me. 
He is a liar from the beginning. He is a murderer of men's souls. Jesus Christ said, the world is passing away. It cannot give you what you hope to get from it. It is passing away. Only I can give you what is lasting and everlasting. Only I can remove your sins. Only I can bring you to my Father's house. Only I can ensure that you will stand in glory. Accept it. Do not believe the lies of this world. Trust instead in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.